0: Our scripture passage today comes from John chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Hear God's holy and infallible word. The pastor of the the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables, And he told those who sold the pigeons, "'Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade.'" His disciples remembered that it was written, "'Zeal for your house will consume me.'" So the Jews said to him, "'What sign do you show us for doing these things?' Jesus answered them, "'Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up.'" The Jews then said, "'It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days?' But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. As we come to God's word, we need his spirit to help us. So let us begin with a moment of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that your spirit would be at work, that it would change us, that it would comfort us, that it would convict us, that it would reveal to us who you are, that it would help us to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We pray that you would help us now, in Jesus' name, amen. So we're continuing in our sermon series on the Gospel of John. And if you remember last week, we looked at a passage where Jesus kind of did his first miracle, but it was very subdued and private. Only really his disciples and the servants and his mom knew what had happened. We talked about how he covered over the, the sins of this man, the shame of this man, this failure of the bridegroom to have enough wine. And he said that his hour had not yet come. And so Jesus was being very private. He was not exposing his full glory. Because when he does, it's going to result in his death. But then we have this next story being told to us. This next account, which couldn't be any more different. Jesus is doing something very public. Very powerful. In front of masses of people. It has the same effect, though, on his disciples. It says at the end that the disciples remembered that he had said this. John's writing this after the fact. So his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed that scripture, and they believed what Jesus had said. Remember, John's writing this book, he tells us in chapter 20, verse 31, so that we would believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we could have life in his name. And so John is showing us, again, a scene in which Jesus displays what he is like, what his kingdom is like, what he as the coming promised king, the son of God, the Christ, is like. And it's to the end that we would believe in him and find life in his name. Before we get too far into the passage, I wanted to ask you a question. Could you remember a time, maybe even recently, when you completely lost your mind? You know, maybe he was on the way here and somebody cut you off. you were running late already and you're just like, oh, you know, you want to throw your phone out the window, whatever it is, right? There, there are times in our lives where usually the thing that's happening isn't that big of a deal, but there's other contributing circumstances, right? Like we were already late. We were already stressed out. I mean, it happens to me almost every day we have a puppy and he's just always barking. Sometimes you just lose it. There are other things in our lives that are more justified when something close to us, something valuable to us is broken or or a person we love dearly is wronged. There's a certain amount of justified anger, zeal, becoming upset for the injustice of something we care about. Although we never have perfect anger, there's certainly sinfulness in the things we do and our outbursts are not usually very justified. We can be tempted to read this passage and look at what Jesus does and think, man, he really lost it. Jesus has kind of become unhinged for a moment. And if we think that way, it's incorrect, right? Jesus, we know, has never sinned. And so when we see Jesus do something as public and as Zealous as this, as shocking as this, it must be done out of some sort of righteous zeal. Like the kind of emotion we have when somebody we love is wronged. When we have things that go wrong in our lives, our response to them typically should be in proportion to their importance. If you break One of the mugs at my office, I'm not going to care because I bought it at a thrift store. But if you go to your grandma's house and there's this, you know, heirloom china and you break it, it's going to just be devastating. And so Jesus' response to what's happening in the temple should pique our interest to remind us of how important the thing is that he's reacting to. One of the things that this passage does for us is it challenges our view of who Jesus is, right? We like the Jesus of the first part of chapter 2, the one who's subdued, who's humbled. Jesus, Jesus, meek and mild. You know, the baby in the manger. He's the easily palatable Jesus. But this contrast that John is presenting to us by having these two exchanges together ought to challenge us and to expand our understanding of who jesus the king is one of my favorite memes on the internet right now is this one it says if anyone ever says to you what would jesus do remind them that flipping over tables and chasing people with a whip is within the realm of possibilities Because in that question, you know, those bands we used to get at youth camp, what would Jesus do, WWJD? It's kind of always the answer, like, well, no, Jesus would be humble and loving. And isn't this the Jesus who tells us to love our enemies? And yet we see this public, shocking event take place. It's challenging our understanding of who Jesus is as the coming king, the promised king, the one who is ushering in the new kingdom. We really have one main idea today, and that is that Jesus, the Christ king, is coming to purify worship. He's coming to purify worship, and he's going to do that in two ways. The first is that Jesus is coming to purify worship by purging error. Jesus is purifying worship by purging air. Uh, Part of our understanding, remember I've said about every week, we need to sometimes put on our first century Jewish ears to understand a little bit more about what's happening. Now, the king of Israel throughout the ages always played a role in the faithful or unfaithful worship of the people of God. Now, he was not the priest, and he shouldn't have been as much of a dictator of it as he was, but when the king shows up to the temple and says, we're going to do this, that's hard for the priest to say no, because he's got the army behind him. And so throughout the history of Israel, more often than not, it was very bad. The king would go and marry a foreign woman with false gods, and he would bring back all of this idolatry and put it up in the temple. And it was a lot of what the prophets spoke against, the king's. Prophets often just spoke to the kings and they said, you need to turn from your idolatry and return to the Lord. But we have these glimmers of hope throughout the history of Israel where a good king would arise. Uh, The most probably famous example of this is the King Josiah. Uh, If you want to look this up this week, 2 Kings chapter 23 is this passage about King Josiah's religious reforms. He understands what faithful worship ought to be and he sees what's happening in Israel and he goes and he does something about it. He goes into the temple and he takes out all of the idolatrous altars, the Asherah poles, the Baal, all the things that the people of God were doing that was an abomination. Removes them from the temple and then he does something even greater. He reintroduces the Passover feast. The Passover feast was this annual celebration of the deliverance of God's people from slavery it was the pinnacle of the redemption of the sons of Abraham they had stopped even celebrating the Passover but Josiah the good king comes and he brings religious reform he purifies worship by removing the idols and reinstituting the Passover it's a tremendous story And there's certainly some imagery of that here as we look at Jesus as the promised coming king who is coming in to speak against the errors of worship in his day. It's interesting that it's taking place at the Passover, especially with Josiah in the back of your mind. Now, this feast of the Passover, it was an annual feast and it would have been more or less obligatory on the people to make their pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate it, to make the offering for the Passover. It was a remembrance, right? You're supposed to remember the Lord's deliverance and so we would do this each year to remind ourselves. So Jerusalem would have been a city about the size of Fargo-Moorhead, a couple hundred thousand people. But at this time, it probably would have been ten times that. A million people showing up And it would have been an opportunity for people to gain some things. And that's what's happening here in our passage. Jesus goes up to the temple and he finds these people selling ox and sheep and pigeons, which, you know, all of these people need to make a sacrifice for the Passover. So it's nothing necessarily wrong with them having these things there, except for the fact that they're in the temple. There was a part of the temple called the Court of the Gentiles. It was a separate area. Gentiles weren't allowed past a certain barrier. right? They were ceremonially unclean. But there was a place, and there's always been a place throughout the history of God's redemption for the nations, the Gentiles, those who would become God-fearers, welcomed in to the worship of the true God. But now that there is this great demand for sacrifices— Well, we're going to disregard that idea, and instead, we're going to fill that court with countless animals and all sorts of business transactions, money changers, and as these people came in, they had to buy these animals for the sacrifice, and they had to pay with the right kind of coin, so they are, you know, doing this exchange rate. There's some historic evidence, and other, you know, as Jesus says in in the other Gospels, like, like, They're cheating people. They're making a buck off of the feast. The whole point of the Passover feast is to come in thanksgiving and in remembrance of God's deliverance. And now the priests, those who are in charge, have taken it as an opportunity to make money. You would think sometimes if you're thinking Jesus lost it here, he's becoming unhinged, that he would have acted impulsively. But we're told that he makes a whip of cords. So Jesus has seen this, and then he goes and buys some leather and then sits down and makes a whip, watching the transactions. I don't know how long it takes to make a whip. At least a couple minutes, if not longer. Jesus is doing something very specific. Jesus is not acting impulsively or emotionally. He is acting as the righteous king who is purifying worship And he drives them out with a whip. The people and the oxen and the sheep. And he flips over the table of the money changers. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Zeal for your house will consume me. It's from a psalm where David is uh, lamenting the people aren't taking his... Exhortation to come into worship. And so the zeal, the, the dishonor that the Lord is feeling, David is feeling. For some reason, the disciples remember that verse and they attribute it to Jesus. The, the wrong worship is being placed, the burden of that is being placed on Jesus. And so the zeal for his house, the zeal for proper worship compels Jesus to act. What's most shocking about this exchange is that if there are, you know, let's say there's 100,000 people in the temple in this kind of vicinity or however many people are there, however many oxen and sheep and one man with a whip drives them all out? There were certainly temple guards, and there was even Roman guards nearby to make sure there wasn't a Jewish uprising. They would have been on high alert with all of these people coming into town. And so you get the sense that Jesus doesn't actually hurt anybody. But something about his display, this scene he creates, they all obey him. I mean, one person could have wrestled him to the ground. And it's this display of his power that begins to tell us what a king cares about most. There isn't anything more central to our faith than proper worship. It is the embodiment of bringing God glory. And when it is tainted by sin and abuse, it causes our king to erupt in judgment. Jesus is judging the system that has become common at his time. He's not judging the individual people. He doesn't stand there and whip one individual. He drives out the whole thing. He purges the temple. The Passover, the people of God were told to purge their houses from leavening. And then they celebrate the seven days of unleavened bread, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And Jesus is purging out the old sinful leaven in the temple. And he's ushering in a new kingdom, a new type of worship, pure worship. One commentator said this the people of Israel expected their king to come. They expected the Messiah to come and that he would attack their enemies. He would attack the Gentiles. He would attack the Romans, right? But instead, he comes and he attacks them. He purifies the worship by purging their errors. The second way in which the coming king, Jesus the Christ, purifies worship is through his death and through his resurrection. This happens. All the people leave. This, it's almost a miraculous scene, right? All, this one man drives out all of the business that's taking place in the temple. And then the leaders come up to him and say, what sign do you show us that you could do these things? Right, he's, he's being very public. He's, what, what authority do you have to do this? He's asked this question many times by the Jews, by the way, and he often alludes to this reality, his death and his resurrection. What sign do you give us? Later on, he says, I only give you the sign of Jonah that the Son of Man will be in the body of the earth for three days and then rise again. And here he alludes to his death by bringing in this temple imagery. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Of course, they don't understand what he's talking about. Because they think he's talking about the temple where they're standing. And so when Jesus comes to purify worship, he doesn't just cleanse out the temple and now business is restored as usual. Instead, Jesus comes as the king and he blows up the whole paradigm. Jesus is the true fulfillment of the temple. He is the true Passover lamb remember John the Baptist as he saw Jesus coming said behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world No longer having to have an annual feast to remember and to continue to Always offer new sacrifices Jesus comes as the fulfillment of the Passover as the lamb of God who once for all takes away the sins of the world He's doing away with this type of temple worship and ushering in something far greater. Here's what Ephesians chapter 2 says Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near. He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to you who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's a long passage. I don't know if you heard everything I said. I would commend you to go and read it. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. This imagery of a temple made up not of stones and mortar and rock and brick or whatever temples are made out of. But made up of people, the apostles and the prophets who told us what God has said. And Jesus Christ being the cornerstone, the thing in which the whole structure rests. And being built together, it's a holy temple to the Lord where his spirit dwells. The the temple at this time is you know the representation of where. God's Spirit dwelt. You came there for the Passover. You had to. It was the only place where you could offer a sacrifice to the Lord. But that's being done away with. Now, wherever God's people are gathered, we are the dwelling place of God's Spirit. Furthermore, so much of this imagery in Ephesians talks about tearing down the dividing wall of hostility in his body. The Gentile courts who can't go past the curtain to get into the temple. The primacy of the people of Israel as the true people of God has been destroyed in Christ's sacrifice. Through his death and his resurrection, he has taken the two and made one new man no longer going to the temple over here, but two people becoming one and being built together into the new temple. Jesus is purifying worship through his death and through his resurrection. He's ushering in a new temple age. This judgment he brings against those errors and abuses are only small. Because ultimately, Not that many years later, in 70 A.D., the full judgment comes against the temple and it is utterly destroyed by the Romans. There are no more sacrifices in Israel. The whole temple system is gone. And what's left in the wake is the church of Jesus Christ. Himself being the cornerstone. So what does Jesus' purification of worship in the first century matter to us now? Why does it matter to us now? First, we are just as prone as they were to pervert the worship of God. You know, we're not, we're not charging an admission to get in or selling you a piece of bread and a glass of wine. If we did that, it would be an obvious parallel. The church has probably done that in the past at some point. But what's happening here is instead of heartfelt, sincere worship, instead of thankful hearts overflowing in the bringing of our offerings to the Lord, there's become this sense of insincerity. Obligatory worship, right? I don't know how many of these people are coming to town thinking, hey, we need to get in and we got to go get the, you know, get our sheep and. Pay the thing and let's just get out of town. Got to check the box. They're obeying God's word by coming and worshiping, but there's an insincerity at place. An obligatory reason to come and to worship. We are prone to those same things. To come and want to check the box. To give because we ought to. Not in response to God's goodness to us. And part of that is we're all prone to this view of having our relationship to God being transactional. Very much the transaction is taking place here, right? I'm going to go and I'm going to buy the sheep and give it to the priest and he's going to sacrifice it and I'm going to be good with God for a year. How often do we fall into that trap that we view our relationship to God as transactional? Well, I'm going to do this good thing and then I'll be good for a while. And then I'll feel bad or I won't come for a while. And then I'll come back again and make it right. Or as long as I do these three things every day, I know I'm okay with God. That's not how our relationship with the Lord works. He has blessed us because he wants to. A free gift. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God gives His grace and His mercy freely, because what if Christ has done for us, not because of any transaction. We're also prone to the idea of being opportunistic. Uh, I remember when I first became a Christian in college, I went home for the summer and I visited a church. I didn't know anything. I just went into the church, thought I' got to go to a church. and I sat down in the back row and uh, met this other man there and um, he asked me what I was going to school for and I was was getting a business degree and he's like oh that's really great we should get coffee this week sometime I'd love to get to know you a little bit more and as we began to have our coffee he began to try to sell me a multi-level marketing scheme (laughs) program he was taking an opportunity to make a buck to get somebody into his world it was always a sad experience in my mind. I mean, it was fine. I moved on. That wasn't my church. But it was, it was, how quick are we to just use any connection we have to people for our own gain? Self-promotion. To take an opportunity that's meant to be God-centered and to make it about us. These are things that our sinful hearts are all prone to, to insincerity, to viewing our relationship with God through the wrong lens, to taking opportunities to promote ourselves, and Jesus is continuing to purge our worship now. Week by week, as we listen to his word and are instructed and we reflect upon it, he is drawing out, like Josiah, the idols in our temple our insincerity, our self-justification, our moralism, our opportunistic hearts, and he is calling us to pure worship, to worship him in spirit and in truth. Related to this idea, we fail to live in the new reality of what Jesus has truly done. Our transactional idea forgets that there's a once-for-all sacrifice. We want to go to the Passover every year and do the good thing so that we can have assurance rather than looking to the one who has made it possible for us to have assurance forever. And we fail to live in the reality that we don't go to a temple, but instead when we gather for worship... We have a man in the heavenly temple interceding for us and our praises are coming before him. We prefer to have beautiful buildings than to reflect and truly believe the things that Jesus has said about our worship. And too often we fail to realize that what's important is not the place But it's the gathering of where God's people are that his spirit comes and meets with us. That this is the primary place in which he is purifying us, teaching us, equipping us, discipling us, bestowing his grace on us. There's no more important part of our faith than worship. Jesus' reaction is not overblown. He is continually doing the work of refining his people, sanctifying us, bringing us more and more into his image, reminding us of his grace, reminding us of the forgiveness through him, reminding us that the Passover systems are gone and there's only one true feast and the lamb has been slain and his blood has been poured out for you to be forgiven. May we be struck with awe and wonder about who Jesus, our coming king, is. May we have true reverence and fear, knowing that he's not just this nice guy, but he is a king who is purging evil, fighting back against injustices, calling our sin what it is, and at the same time giving us the grace and mercy we need to be made right with God and may we begin to grow in our zeal for God's glory, for his right worship, that we would seek to worship him in spirit and in truth. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, you are worthy of pure worship, and we are so prone to offer you tainted worship. Thank you that Jesus has bridged the gap for us. Thank you that the Lamb of God has taken away our sin. That he intercedes, that he takes our feeble words and makes them perfect before you. Help us. Help us in our weakness. Give us pure hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.